Part 2, Chapter 4 of A Man Could Stand Up by Ford Maddox Ford. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Peter Dan. A Man Could Stand Up. Part 2, Chapter 4. It meant that the end of the war was in sight. In the next sector, in front of the headquarters dugout sacking, they found only 2nd Lieutenant Arendres and Lance Corporal Duckett of the orderly room. Both good boys, the Lance Corporal with very long, graceful legs. He picked up his feet well, but continually rubbed his ankles with his shoe and he talked earnestly. Somebody's bastard. McKechnie plunged at once into the story of the sonnet. The Lance Corporal had, of course, a large number of papers for teachings to sign. An untidy, buff and white sheaf, so McKechnie had time to talk. He wished to establish himself as on a level with the temporary CO, at least intellectually. He didn't. Arendres kept on exclaiming, The Major wrote a sonnet in two and a half minutes. The Major! Who would have thought it? Ingenuous boy. Teachens looked at the papers with some attention. He had been so kept out of contact with the affairs of the battalion that he wanted to know. As he had suspected, the paper business of the unit was in a shocking state. Brigade, division, even army, and positively Whitehall, were strafing for information about everything imaginable, from jam, toothbrushes and braces, to religions, vaccination and barrack damages. This was interesting matter, a relief to contemplate. You would almost think all wise authorities snowed under and broke the backs of commanding officers with papers in order to relieve their minds of affording alternative interests, alternative to the exigencies of active hostilities. It was certainly a relief, whilst waiting for a strafe to come to the right stage, to have to read a violent inquiry about PRI funds whilst the battalion had been resting near a place called Bayancourt. It appeared that Teachens might well be thankful that he had not been allowed to handle the PRI funds. The second in command is the titular administrator of the Regimental Institute. He is the president, supposed to attend to the men's billiard tables, almanacs, backgammon boards, football boots. But the CO had preferred to keep these books in his own hands. Teachens regarded that as a slight. Perhaps it had not been. It went quickly through his head that the CO perhaps had financial difficulties, though that was no real affair of his. The Horse Guards was pressingly interested in the pre-enlistment affairs of a private called 64 Smith. They asked violently and for the third time for particulars of his religion, previous address and real name. That was no doubt the espionage branch at work. But the Whitehall was also more violently interested in answers to queries about the disposal of regimental funds of a training camp in January 1915. As long ago as that, the mills of God grind slowly. That query was covered by a private note from the brigadier, saying that he wished for goodness sake that the CO would answer these queries or there would have to be a court of inquiry. These particular two papers ought not to have been brought to Teachens. He held them between the thumb and forefinger of his left hand, and the query upon 64 Smith, S, which seemed rather urgent, between his first and second, and so handed them to Lance Corporal Duckett. That nice, clean, fair boy was, at the moment, talking in intimate undertones to Second Lieutenant Arendres about the resemblance between the Petrarchan and the Shakespearean sonnet form. This was what His Majesty's expeditionary force had come to. You had four of its warriors, four minutes before the zero of a complete advance of the whole German line, all interested in sonnets. 
Drake and his game of bowls, in fact, repeated itself. Differently, of course, but times change. He handed the two selected papers to Duckett. Give this one to the commanding officer, he said, and tell the sergeant major to find what company 64 Smith is in and have him brought to me wherever I am. I'm going right along the trenches now. Come after me when you've been to the CO and the sergeant major. Orangers will make notes of what I want done about revetting. You can put down anything about the personnel of the companies. Get a move on. He told McKechnie amiably to be out of those lines forthwith. He didn't want him killed on his hands. The sun was now shining into the trench. He looked again through brigades that morning communication concerning dispositions the unit was to make in the event of the expected German attack, due to begin, the preparatory artillery at least, in three minutes' time. Don't we say prayers before battle? He could not imagine himself doing it. He just hoped that nothing would happen that would make him lose control of his mind. Otherwise, he found that he was meditating on how to get the paper affair of the unit into a better state. Who sweeps a room as for thy cause? It was the equivalent of prayer, probably. He noted that Brigade's injunctions about the coming fight were not only endorsed with earnestness by division, but also by various serious exhortations from army. The chit from Brigade was in handwriting, that from division in fairly clear typescript, that from army in very pale-typed characters. It amounted to this, that they were that day to stick it till they burst, That meant that there was nothing behind their backs from there to the North Sea. The French were hurrying along, probably. He imagined a lot of little blue fellows in red breeches trotting along pink sunlit plains. You cannot control your imagination's pictures. Of course, the French no longer wore red trousers. He saw the line breaking just where the blue section came to. The rest swept back into the sea. He saw the whole of the terrain behind them. On the horizon was a glistening haze. That was where they were going to be swept to. Or, of course, they would not be swept. They would be lying on their faces, exposing the seats of their breeches, too negligible for the large dustpan and broom. What was death like, the immediate process of dissolution? He stuffed the papers into his tunic pocket. He remembered with grimish amusement that one chit promised him reinforcements. Sixteen men. Sixteen. Worcesters. From a Worcester training camp. Why the deuce weren't they sent to the Worcester battalion just next door? Good fellows, no doubt. But they hadn't got the drill quiffs of our lot. They were not pals with our men. They did not know the officers by name. There would be no welcome to cheer them. It was a queer idea, the deliberate destruction of regimental esprit de corps that the home authorities now insisted on. It was said to be imitated at the suggestion of a civilian of advanced social views from the French, who in turn had imitated it from the Germans. It is, of course, lawful to learn of the enemy, but is it sensible? Perhaps it is. The feudal spirit was broken. Perhaps it would therefore be harmful to trench warfare. It used to be comfortable and cosy. You fought beside men from your own hamlet, under the leadership of the parson's son. Perhaps that was not good for you. At any rate, as at present arranged, dying was a lonely affair. He, Teachens, and little Arundres there, if something hit them, would die, a Yorkshire territorial magnate son, and the son of, positively, an Oporto Protestant minister, if you can imagine such a thing, the dissimilar souls winging their way to heaven side by side. 
You'd think God would find it more appropriate if Yorkshiremen went with other North Country fellows and Dagos with other Papists. For Arundres, though the son of a nonconformist of sorts, had reverted to the faith of his fathers. He said, Come along, Arundres, I want to see that wet bit of trench before the Hun shells hit it. Well, they were getting reinforcements. The home authorities had awakened to their prayers. They sent them sixteen Worcesters. There would be three hundred and forty-four, no, forty-three, because he had sent back Go Eleven Griffith, the fellow with the cornet, three hundred and forty-three lonely souls against, say, two divisions, against about eighteen thousand, very likely, and they were to stick it till they burst, reinforced, reinforced, good God, sixteen Worcesters. What was at the bottom of it all? Campion was going to command that army. That meant that real reinforcements had been promised from the millions of men that filled the base camps, and it meant the single command. Campion would not have consented to take the command of that army if he had not had those very definite promises. But it would take time, months. Anything like adequate reinforcements would take months. And at that moment, in the most crucial point of the line of the army, of the expeditionary force, the Allied forces, the Empire, the universe, the solar system, they had 366 men commanded by the last surviving Tory to face wave on wave of the enemy. In one minute the German barrage was due. Arundres said to him, You can write a sonnet in two and a half minutes, sir, and your siphon works like anything in that damp trench. It took my mother's great-uncle, the canon of Oporto, fifteen weeks to finish his celebrated sonnet. I know, because my mother told me. But she wouldn't to be here, sir. Arandres, then, was the nephew of the author of the sonnet tonight. He could be. You had to have that sort of oddity to make up this world, so naturally he was interested in sonnets. And, having got hold of a battalion with a stretch of damp trench, Teachens had had the opportunity of trying a thing he had often thought of, of drying out vertically cut damp soil by means of a siphon of soil pipes put in, not horizontally, but vertically. Fortunately, Hackett, the commander of B Company that had the wet trench, had been an engineer in civil life. Arundres had been along, out of sheer hero worship, to B trenches, to see how his hero's siphons had worked. He reported that they worked like a dream. Little Arundres said, These trenches are like Pompeii, sir. Teachens had never seen Pompeii, but he understood that Arundres was referring to the empty square-cut excavations in the earth, particularly to their emptiness, and to the deadly stillness in the sunlight. Admirable trenches, made to hold an establishment of several thousand men, to bustle with cockney life, now dead empty. They passed three sentries in the pinkish gravel passage and two men, one with a pick, the other with a shovel. They were exactly squaring the juncture of the wall and the path as they might have done in Pompeii or in Hyde Park. A perfect devil for tidiness, a eh, company commander? But the men seemed to like it. They were sniggering, though they stopped that, of course, when Tietjens passed. A nice, dark, tiny boy, Arandres. His adoration was charming. From the very first, and naturally frightened out of his little life, he had clung to Tietjens as a child clings to an omnipotent father. Tietjens, all wise, could direct the awful courses of war and decree safety for the frightened. Tietjens needed that sort of worship. The boy said it would be awful to have anything happen to your eyes. Your girl, naturally, would not look at you. No more than three miles away, Nancy Truefit was now, 
unless they had evacuated her. Nancy was his flame, in a tea shop at Bayeux. A man was sitting outside the mouth of a dugout just after they passed the mouth of the communication trench. Comforting that channel in the soil looked running uphill. You could saunter away up there out of all this, but you couldn't. There was no turning here either to the right or to the left. The man writing in a copy book had his tin hat right over his eyes. Engrossed, he sat on a gravel step, his copy book on his knees. His name was Slocum, and he was a dramatist, like Shakespeare. He made fifty pounds a time writing music hall sketches for the outer halls. The outer halls were the cheap music halls that go in a ring round the suburbs of London. Slocum never missed a second, writing in his copy books. If you fell the men out for a rest when marching, Slocum would sit down by the roadside, and out would come his copy book and his pencil. His wife would type out what he sent home, and write him grumbling letters if the supply of copy failed. How is she to keep up the Sunday best of George and Flossie if he did not keep on writing one-act sketches? Teachens had this information through censoring one of the man's letters containing manuscript. Slocum was slovenly as a soldier, but he kept the other men in a good humour, his mind being a perfect repertoire of cockney jests at the expense of Big and Little Willie and Brother Fritz. Slocum wrote on, wetting his pencil with his tongue. The sergeant in the mouth of A Company headquarters dugout started to turn out some sort of a guard, but Teachens stopped him. A Company ran itself on the lines of regulars in the depot. The OC had a conduct sheet book as neat as a ledger. The old, bald, grim fellow. Teachens asked the sergeant questions. Had they their mills bombs all right? They weren't short of rifles? First class order? But how could they be? Were there any sick? Two. Well, it was a healthy life. Keep the men under cover until the Hun barrage began. It was due now. It was due now. The second hand of Teachens' watch, like an animated pointer of hair, kicked a little on the stroke of the minute. Crumb, said the punctual distant sound. Teachens said to Arandres, It's presumably coming now. Arandres pulled at the chin strap of his tin hat. Teachens' mouth filled itself with a dreadful salty flavour, the back of his tongue being dry. His chest and heart laboured heavily. Arandres said, If I stop one, sir, you'll tell Nancy Truefit that... Teachin said, Little nippers like you don't stop things. Besides, feel the wind. They were at the highest point of the trenches that ran along a hillside. So they were exposed. The wind had undoubtedly freshened coming down the hill. In front and behind, along the trench, they could see views. Land, some green, greyish trees. Arandres said, You think the wind will stop them, sir? Appealingly. Teachens exclaimed with gruffness, Of course it will stop them. They won't work without gas. Yet their men hate to have to face the gas screens. It's our great advantage. It saps their morale. Nothing else would. They can't put up smoke screens either. Arandres said, I know you think their gas has ruined them, sir. It was wicked of them to use it. You can't do a wicked thing without suffering for it, can you, sir? It remained indecently quiet, like Sunday in a village with the people in church but it was not pleasurable. Teachens wondered how long physical irregularities would inconvenience his mind. You cannot think well with a parched back to your tongue. This was practically his first day in the open during a strafe, his first whole day for quite a time, since Noirco, how long ago? Two years, maybe? 
Then he had nothing to go on to tell him how long he would be inconvenienced. It remained indecently quiet, running footsteps, at first on duckboards, then on the dry path of trench. They made Tichin start violently inside himself. The house must be on fire. He said to Arendris, someone is in a hurry. The lad's teeth chattered. They must have made him feel bad too, the footsteps, the knocking on the gate in Macbeth. They began. It had come. Pam, pampery, pam, pam, pap, pampery, pam, 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 peri, pam, 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 pam. They were the ones that sounded like drums. They continued incessantly, immensely big drums, the ones that go at it with real zest. You know how it is, looking at an opera orchestra, when the fellow with the big drumsticks really begins, your own heart beats like hell. Tichens' heart did. The drummer appears to go mad. Tichens was never much good at identifying artillery by the sound. He would have said that these were anti-aircraft guns, and he remembered that for some minutes the drone of plane engines had pervaded the indecent silence. But that drone was so normal it was part of the silence, like your own thoughts a filtered and engrossed sound drifting down from overhead, more like fine dust than noise. A familiar noise said, Wee! Shells always appeared tired of life, as if after a long, long journey they said, Wee! Very much prolonging the E sound, then whack when they burst. This was the beginning of the strafe. Though he had been convinced the strafe was coming, he had hoped for a prolongation of the, say, Bemerton conditions, the life peaceful and contemplative. But here it was beginning. Ah, oh, well. This shell appeared heavier and to be more than unusually tired, desultory. It seemed to pass within six feet over the heads of Arangway and himself. Then, just twenty yards up the hill, it said invisibly, Dud. And it was a dud. It had not very likely been aimed at their trench at all. It was probably just an aircraft shrapnel shell that had not exploded. The Germans were firing a great number of duds these days. So it might not be a sign of the beginning. It was tantalising. But as long as it ended the right way, one could bear it. Lance Corporal Duckett, the fair boy, ran to within two foot of Teachin's feet and pulled up with a gardee's stamp and a terrific salute. There was life in the old dog yet meaning that a zest for spit and polish survived in places in these ragtime days. The boy said, panting, it might have been agitation or that he had run so fast. But why he'd run so fast if he were not agitated? If you please, sir, pant, will you come to the colonel, pant, with as little delay as possible? He remained panting. It went through Teachin's mind that he was going to spend the rest of the day in a comfortable dark hole, not in the blinding daylight. Let us be thankful. Leaving Lance Corporal Duckett, it came suddenly into his head that he liked that boy because he suggested Valentine Wallop to converse in intimate tones with Arundress and so to distract him from fear of imminent death or blindness that would mean the loss of his girl, Teachens went smartly back along the trenches. He didn't hurry. He was determined that the men should not see him hurry. Even if the colonel should refuse to be relieved of the command, Teachens was determined that the men should have the consolation of knowing that headquarters numbered one cool, sauntering soul amongst its members. They had had, when they took over the Trasna Valley trenches before the Mammoth's Wood affair, a rather good major who wore an eyeglass and was of good family. 
He had something the matter with him, for he committed suicide later. But as they went in, the Huns, say fifty yards away, began to shout various national battle cries of the Allies or the melodies of regimental quicksteps of British regiments. The idea was that if they heard, say, some talk of Alexander resounding from an opposite trench, HM Second Grenadier Guards would burst into cheers and Brother Hun would know what he had before him. Well, this Major Grosvenor shut his men up, naturally, and stood listening with his eyeglass screwed into his face and the air of a connoisseur at a quartet party. At last he took his eyeglass out, threw it in the air and caught it again. Shut Bansai, men, he said. That, on the off chance, might give the enemy a scunner at the thought that we had Japanese troops in the line in front of them, or it would show them that we were making game of them, a form of offensive that sent these owlish fellows mad with rage. So the Huns shut up. That was the sort of humour in an officer that the men still liked, the sort of humour Teachens himself had not got, but he could appear unconcernedly reflective and all there, and he could tell them, at trying moments, that, say, their ideas about skylarks were all wrong. That was tranquillising. Once he had heard a papist padre preaching in a barn, under shellfire. At any rate, shells were going overhead and pigs underfoot. The padre had preached about very difficult points in the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception, and the men had listened raptly. He said that was common sense. They didn't want lacrimose or mortuary orations. They wanted their minds taken off, and so did the padre. Thus she talked to the men, just before the event, about skylarks, or the hind legs of the elephant at the old lane, and you don't hurry when the colonel sends for you. He walked along for a moment or two, thinking nothing. The pebbles in the gravel of the trench grew clear and individual. Someone had dropped a letter. Slocum, the dramatist, was closing his copy-book. Sighing, apparently, he reached for his rifle. A Company Sergeant Major was turning out some men of sorts. He said, get a move on. Teachin said as he passed, keep them under cover as much as you can, Sergeant Major. It occurred to him suddenly that he had committed a military misdemeanour at leaving Lance Corporal Duckett with Arundres. An officer should not walk along a stretch of lonely trench without escort. Some Hun offering might hit him and there would be loss of property to His Majesty. No one to fetch a doctor or stretcher-bearer while you bled to death. That was the army. Well, he had left Duckett with Arundres to comfort him. That minute subaltern was suffering. God knew what little agonies ran about in his little mind, like mice. He was as brave as a lion when strafes were on. When they weren't, his little blackamoor, knobby face quivered as the thoughts visited him. He had really left Valentine Wanop with Arundres. That, he realised, was what he had done. The boy, Duckett, was Valentine Wanop, clean, blonde, small, with the ordinary face, the courageous eyes, the obstinately slightly peaked nose. It was just as if, Valentine Wanop being in his possession, they had been walking along a road and seen someone in distress. And he, Teachens, had said, I've got to get along, you stop and see what you can do. And, amazingly, he was walking along a country road beside Valentine Wanop, silent, with the quiet intimacy that comes with possession. She belonged to him. Not a mountain road, not Yorkshire, not a valley road, not Bemerton. A country parsonage was not for him, so he wouldn't take orders. A dawnland road with some old thorn trees. They only really grew in Kent, and the sky coming down on all sides. 
the flat top of a down. Amazing. He had not thought of that girl for over a fortnight now, except in moments of great strafes when he had hoped she would not be too worried if she knew where he was, because he had the sense that all the time she knew where he was. He had thought of her less and less, at longer intervals, as with his nightmare of the mining Germans who desired that a candle should be brought to the captain. At first, every night, three or four times every night, it had visited him. Now it only came once every night. The physical semblance of that boy had brought the girl back to his mind. That was accidental, so it was not part of any psychological rhythm. It did not show him, that is to say, whether, in the natural course of events and without accidents, she was ceasing to obsess him. She was certainly now obsessing him, beyond bearing or belief. His whole being was overwhelmed by her, by her mentality, really. For, of course, the physical resemblance of the Lance Corporal was mere subterfuge. Lance Corporals do not resemble young ladies, and, as a matter of fact, he did not remember exactly what Valentine Wannup looked like, not vividly. He had not that sort of mind. It was words that his mind found that let him know that she was fair, snub-nosed, rather broad-faced and square on her feet, as if he had made a note of it and referred to it when he wanted to think of her. His mind didn't make any mental picture. It brought up a sort of blur of sunlight. It was the mentality that obsessed him, the exact mind, the impatience of solecisms and facile generalizations, a queer nostalgia of the charms of one's lady love. But he wanted to hear her say, Oh, chuck it, Edith Ethel, when Edith Ethel Dushiman, now, of course, Lady McMaster, quoted some of the opinions expressed in McMaster's critical monograph about the late Mr. Rossetti. How very late now. It would rest him to hear that. She was, in effect, the only person in the world that he wanted to hear speak. Certainly the only person in the world that he wanted to talk to. The only clear intelligence the repose that his mind needed from the crackling of thorns under all the pots of the world, from the eternal, imbecile, pam-pam-peri-pam-pam-pam-peri-pam-pam of the German guns that all the while continued. Why couldn't they chuck that? What good did it do them to keep that mad drummer incessantly thundering on his stupid instrument? Possibly they might bring down some of our planes, but they generally didn't. He saw the black ball of their shells exploding and slowly expand like pocket handkerchiefs about the unconcerned planes, like black peas aimed at dragonflies against the blue, the illuminated pinkish pretty things. But his dislike of those guns was just dislike, a Tory prejudice. They were probably worthwhile, just... He naturally tried every argument in the unseen contest of wills that went on across the firmament. Oh, says our staff, they're going to attack in force at such an hour, ak gamma, because naturally the staff thought in terms of ak gamma years after the 24-hour day had been established. Well, we'll send out a million machine-gun planes to wipe out any men they've got moving up into support. It was, of course, unusual to move bodies of men by daylight, but this game had only two resources. You used the usual, or the unusual. Usually you didn't begin your barrage after dawn and launch your attack at 10.30 or so, so you might do it. The Huns might be trying it on, as a surprise measure. 
On the other hand, our people might be sending over the plains, whose immense droning was then making your very bones vibrate, in order to tell the Huns that we were ready to be surprised, that the time was now about come round when we might be expecting the Hun brain to think out a surprise. So we sent out those deathly dreadful things to run along just over the tops of the hedgerows, in spite of all the guns. For there was nothing more terrifying in the whole war than that span of lightness, swaying, approaching a few feet above the heads of your column of men, instinct with wrath, dispensing the dreadful rain. So we had sent them. In a moment they would be tearing down. Of course, if this were merely a demonstration, if, say, there were no reinforcements moving, no troops detraining at the distant railhead, the correct Hun answer would be to hammer some of our trenches to hell with all the heavy stuff they could put onto them. That was like saying sardonically, God, if you interfere with our peace and quiet on a fine day, we'll interfere with yours. And carumph, the wagons of coal would fly over until we recalled our planes and all went to sleep again over the chessboard. You would probably be just as well off if you refrained from either demonstration or counter-demonstration. But great general staff like to exchange these witticisms in iron and a little blood. A sergeant of sorts approached him from Battalion HQ way, shepherding a man with a head wound. His tin hat, that is to say, was perched jauntily forward over a bandage. He was Jewish-nosed appeared not to have shaved, though he had, and appeared as if he ought to have worn pince-nez to complete his style of oriental manhood. Private Smith, Teachin said, Look here, what was your confounded occupation before the war? The man replied with an agreeable, cultured, throaty intonation, I was a journalist, sir, on a socialist paper, extreme left. And what, Teachin's asked, was your agreeable name? I'm obliged to ask you that question. I don't want to insult you. In the old regular army, it was an insult to ask a private if he was not going under his real name. Most men enlisted under false names. The man said, Eisenstein, sir. Teachens asked if the man were a Derby recruit or compulsorily enlisted. He said he had enlisted voluntarily. Teachens said, why? If the fellow was a capable journalist and on the right side, he would be more useful outside the army. The man said he had been foreign correspondent of a left paper. Being correspondent of a left paper with a name like Eisenstein deprived one of one's chance of usefulness. Besides, he wanted to have a whack at the Prussians. He was of Polish extraction. Teachens asked the sergeant if the man had a good record. The sergeant said, First class man, first class soldier. He had been recommended for the DCM. Teachens said, I shall apply to have you transferred to the Jewish regiment. In the meantime, you can go back to the first line transport. You shouldn't have been a left journalist and have a name like Eisenstein. One or the other, not both. The man said the name had been inflicted on his ancestry in the Middle Ages. He would prefer to be called Esau as the son of that tribe. He pleaded not to be sent to the Jewish regiment, which was believed to be in Mesopotamia, just when the fighting there was at its most interesting. You're probably thinking of writing a book, Teachin said. Well, there are all Abenar and Parfar to write about. I'm sorry, but you're intelligent enough to see that I can't take... He stopped, fearing that if the sergeant heard any more, the men might make it hot for the fellow as a suspect. He was annoyed at having asked his name before the sergeant. He appeared to be a good man. Jews could fight and hunt, but he wasn't going to take any risks. The man, dark-eyed and erect, flinched a little, gazing into Teachin's eyes. I suppose you can't, sir, he said. It's a disappointment. 
I'm not writing anything. I want to go on in the army. I like the life. Teachin said, I'm sorry, Smith. I can't help it. Fall out. He was sorry. He believed the fellow. But responsibility hardens the heart. It must. A very short time ago he would have taken trouble over that fellow. A great deal of trouble, very likely. Now he wasn't going to. A large capital A in whitewash decorated the piece of corrugated iron that was derelictly propped against a channel at right angles to the trench. To Tichin's astonishment, a strong impulse like a wave of passion influenced his being towards the left, up that channel. It wasn't funk. It wasn't any sort of funk. He had been rather irritatedly wrapped up in the case of Private Smith Eisenstein. It had undeniably irritated him to have to break the chances of a Jew and Red Socialist. It was the sort of thing one did not do if one were omnipotent as he was. Then, this strong impulse? It was a passionate desire to go where you could find exact intellect, rest. He thought he suddenly understood. For the Lincolnshire Sergeant Major, the word peace meant that a man could stand up on a hill. For him, it meant someone to talk to. End of part two, chapter four.